Welcome to the Hurricane Center podcast, produced by the Storm Science Network and part of the National Tropical Weather Conference. This podcast is made possible by USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylock's Hurricane Clips. Again, we have an all-historical uh, event here. Storms have produced uh, uh, history-changing uh, impacts uh, in the Atlantic Basin, and we have four uh, experts on the historical aspects of hurricanes today. Uh, we introduce each one as they speak, and uh, we'll start off with uh, Dr. Eric Dolan, uh, uh, author of uh, uh, Furious Skies. We had him on here a few weeks ago. Uh, uh, fascinated with what he had, so... Uh, Eric, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you start the discussion in some of the way back when hurricanes. Okay, thank you, Bill. Yeah, I'm going to start in the 1500s, and as many of you no doubt know, uh, that's about the time that uh, the Spanish Empire was colonizing Central and South America, and they also wanted to reach out to the northern continent. So in 1559, 11 ships left from Veracruz, Mexico, heading to the Florida coast. They actually landed in uh, Pensacola Bay, what is Pensacola Bay now, Pensacola Harbor. And uh, they were trying to establish a new colony. Uh, things uh, didn't go well for the first few days. Uh, the Indians were rather hostile, but they started to offload the ships. There were a thousand people, including and in addition, 500 soldiers. So they were really making a, a good try at colonization. But then a hurricane uh, hit that area. And uh, the nine ships that remained, six of them were sent to the bottom of the bay. The three others were damaged. Most of their food and supplies was gone. The food they had offloaded uh, already onto the coast uh, was drenched with rain. Now, the Luna expedition, as it was called, tried to survive as best as it could for the next uh, few months and into a year, but uh, they were really having a difficult time. The Indians weren't very cooperative. They weren't, uh, the, re the relief ships that were sent to resupply them uh, didn't uh, sort of make the grade. And eventually the Luna colony entirely disappeared. And uh, just imagine what might have happened had that colony not disappeared and had they gotten a foothold in the Pensacola area, the Spanish might have started to migrate outwards uh, towards the north, west, and east, and uh, North American history might have changed significantly. Now, just about uh, five or six years later, in the mid-1560s, there was another uh, hurricane that had a great impact on the future of uh, colonial history. And this is a time in about 1564, 1565, when Spain and France were battling once another, one another for control of Florida. And both of them sent over quite powerful fleets to uh, take control of their area of Florida, St. Augustine area for the Spanish and further north in Jacksonville for the French and uh, the French fleet was very uh, formidable. So was the Spanish fleet. And the French decided uh, in 1565 to go down and vanquish uh, Menendez and all of his Spanish soldiers. And they were off the coast of St. Augustine when another hurricane came by. Uh, 
And that hurricane sent the entire French fleet, uh, 500 soldiers and Marines, uh, south, uh, and they crashed into the shallows of uh, Cape Canaveral, off Cape Canaveral. Uh, Menendez and his troops, uh, they knew by the direction of the wind that uh, either the French fleet had, uh, it, well, definitely the French fleet had been pushed to the south and very likely had crashed. So this gave Menendez an idea. He decided to go north uh, to the fort, Fort Caroline, that the French had established, and take that out, and he did. And it was a 40 miles, 40, 50 miles slog over the land during a hurricane. And then he quickly uh, retraced his steps because he thought that if the French fleet had crashed, the remnants of that fleet might uh, have made it to land and might have walked north and would attack St. Augustine. So Menendez went down south and he picked up the survivors of the 500 Frenchmen that had been on those ships which crashed in the shallows of Cape Canaveral, a little more than half of them had managed to make it to shore. But Menendez caught all of them and uh, tied their hands behind their back. And in a sign of how much hatred the Spanish had for the French, he summarily uh, beheaded and otherwise killed 200 of the French soldiers, leaving only 100 uh, as, as prisoners. And uh, basically, that event was the end of the French efforts to colonize Florida. So again, had the French succeeded, had that hurricane not struck at that moment, it is quite likely that the French might have over overpowered the Spanish. And then instead of uh, Florida becoming a Spanish colonial possession up until the Seven Years' War in 1763, it might have become a French colony. And then uh, it's very conceivable that the history of North America would have changed dramatically. Could not only would the French have come from the north and Canada to the south, but they might have gone north from Florida. And the other hurricanes I want to talk about are the ones that took place in 1780, so we, uh, during the American Revolution. Uh, in the summer of 1780, uh, Spanish, uh, French and British fleets were in the Caribbean protecting their colonial possessions and also refitting and preparing for the war that they were engaged in. Of course, the French had recently become allies of the American colonists, and the American colonists were fighting the British. But during the summer of 1780, two massive hurricanes struck in the Caribbean and killed more than 22,000 people, sunk numerous British and French ships. And this caused the French, who had been wavering about going north to help their colonial allies, it caused them to change the calculus of their decision-making. They decided that they didn't want to remain in the Caribbean during this subsequent hurricane season. So when 1781, the summer of 1781 rolled around, the French fleet sailed north, not only to escape hurricane season, or the, the brunt of hurricane season, but also to aid their American allies. And of course, we know what happened there. They got there just in the nick of time uh, to prote protect uh, the, the American and French forces who were in Yorktown squaring off against the British forces and Lord Cornwallis. So the French fleet 
uh, plug the opening to the bay and they had the Battle of the, the Capes or the Battle of Chesapeake Bay and uh, fought off the British fleet that had come down from New York. They headed back to New York. And then, of course, George Washington and his French allies uh, beat Cornwallis and the British and that ended in the surrender, the Battle of Yorktown, surrender on October 19, 1781, which was a defining point in the American Revolution. Although it didn't end it, it did uh, serve as a turning point. And not long thereafter, peace negotiations uh, took place. So once again, it's amazing as an historian to think about how history might have changed had that hurricane not struck and the French not decided to go north to help their American allies at that moment. So those are the hurricanes I was going to cover. I'm happy to pass it off to the next person. You're on mute. Uh, thank you. Uh, that was fantastic. Uh, uh, Eric, our next speaker, uh, Dr. Kerry Mark, is a new uh, attendee to our uh, uh, NTWC Live. Uh, he come to, comes to us from the University of South Carolina, where he is a professor in the geography department. And I've followed him for a number of years on the interesting uh, investigative work he does on historical aspects of storms, uh, a lot of them in the pre-official uh, period of record uh, in our hurricane record in the 1850s. So, Kerry, yeah, take it away. Okay, I'm glad to be here. So what I thought I would do first, just, just very briefly, kind of mention, I kind of come through this perspective a bit more as a geographer. That's what I am. So I look at stuff, you know, there's regional impacts. There's maybe huge national impacts. Like, like Eric mentioned, a whole country could have changed from some hurricanes. And then I tend to be a little bit more biased on looking at primary data, you know, which is what I do since I have to do research and all that. So in trying to think about hurricanes that change history, um, you know, I kind of struggle, I guess it's a loose, a loose term in a way, you know, you can easily think of the modern period where you had the Katrinas and the Andrews and all that, and you know that change the way we think about hurricanes, but a lot of those in the pre-1900 era, we, a lot of them people don't really know much about, so it's hard for me to actually assess how they change history, but I'll just throw in some things there. There are some of the obvious ones that changed them at the local scale, you know, when they just cause pure damage and kill a lot of people. So you can talk about something like the 1831 Great Barbados hurricane. I killed thousands and set the economy and things like that in that in that area several decades back. You know, and then there's, um, you know, I tend to be a little biased somewhat towards the South Carolina stuff a little bit, but the 1893 Sea Islands hurricane, and there was a major hurricane in South Carolina later that year, you know, not only did it kill thousands, that's the immediate impact, but it changed the whole rice culture industry of, of the South. You know, South Carolina, up to the Civil War, was actually second in a nation in producing rice, and it was the main place to produce rice, and after the hurricanes, after that, the rice plantations and all that were pretty much never really existed practically again. So, but one of them I'll talk about more, you know, here is the 1752 South Carolina hurricane. When you get a little bit later past the 1500s, you know, we have a little bit more settled nations, you know, and all that. So it's hard to, it's hard to have a real huge nationwide impact, but that one's a little bit more involved. Now, it's, it's like a Hurricane Hugo type storm, you know, Hugo from 1989, 
But from my research and all that, from ship logs and things like that, I think it was stronger than Hugo. It was it was smaller than Hugo, but but it had about the same storm surge. So given all those equal, the winds, from my impression, had to be stronger. Maybe even approaching Category Five. But with the older data, I can't you know I can't quite prove that. But what it did there is the hurricane recovery was the big key thing after that, where there was a big conflict between a royal governor and then the South Carolina Commons House, and they were slow to get stuff to recover. The royal people didn't want to really give them the resources to recover. You know, we, we even see that to some extent today with big hurricanes and recovery. So that increased the huge tension in the American South perspective, even before the New England stuff, leading up to the American Revolution, where you know the agricultural stuff in the South was set back because Charleston was a center. So that's one of the, not the only catalyst, obviously, but one of the important, but maybe unknown catalysts that led up to the American Revolution. Another thing I do with hurricanes, I'm trying to make sure I don't go over in time here, is I've done some stuff with hurricane memory, looking at primary documents and newspapers and stuff like that to see which hurricanes are kind of legacy hurricanes over long periods of time. I imagine you know some of those like Andrew and Katrina, people are gonna know about those hundreds of years from now. But when you go farther back, there's not nearly as many of them. I think 1752 was one of them at the regional scale for South Carolina. The people didn't forget about that hurricane, even back after, even back to 752 in New England, I'll just mention it, that 1815 really stands out. The 1815 hurricane was a pure tropical type of hurricane, as opposed to nothing against the 1938 Express, but that one looked very tropical and all that, and people always noted about that, and probably a lot more research should be focused on that one. And New Orleans, the 1812 hurricane, stands out. That's one of my favorite storms. But what it did for history, which may not be as much known, is it prevented the British from invading New Orleans early in the war, which back then, probably the Americans would have been caught off guard. Of course, the British tried it a few years later and didn't do very well. Um, I think some hurricanes can have a background factor. You don't necessarily pinpoint one hurricane. Like, for example, the 1837 hurricanes in 1839, they affected Bermuda and stuff like that. It really influenced the thinking of hurricanes of William Reed, the law of storms, which was you know, the big debate about hurricanes like global warming is today at that time. The South Carolina Georgetown area, you know, in the 1820s and 1830s, and a 20-year period had 11 hurricanes, and they actually transformed the cultural landscape, which defined the rice agriculture, which was very dominant at the time. And the last thing I'll say here, which is one of my wild ideas, although I had to look more into it, when you get to the 1850s leading up to the Civil War, that's when the South really became prominent in their antebellum agriculture. And there weren't that many landfalling hurricanes. You know, I'm not going to necessarily say that the lack of hurricanes caused the Civil War, but it's maybe attractive to think that way. Okay. Very good. Okay, guys. Thank you very much. Sure. Okay. Uh, we're going to jump forward in time here, and uh, and we're going to go down to Chris Lanzi with a very uh, tropical-looking setup for his uh, presence with us today at his house in, in lovely uh, southern Miami-Dade County. So, Chris, take it away. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for the opportunity for uh, participating today in this session. Um, let me just make sure, can you all hear me okay? All right, great. Um, so I, I was grappling on what storm would be best to talk about. Um, 
Camille was one that came up uh, uh, 1969 that uh, struck as a Mississippi and Louisiana as a Category 5. Um, but for me personally, um, affecting me uh, as well as uh, profound effects on the country, um, Hurricane Andrew in 1992 was one that I just uh, I, I thought we needed to spend some time on. Um, so just a little perspective, 1992, I was a graduate student studying hurricanes in Colorado, yet I grew up in Miami. Um, and the hurricane uh, destroyed my parents' house. Uh, fortunately, they were not hurt. Um, so I came down afterwards for the next couple of weeks and helped them clean up and, and find their possessions. Um, so Andrew occurred when I was trying to formulate my understanding of, of hurricanes, still am. Um, and so it's uh, everything, especially if you lived in Miami in 1992, is either pre-Andrew or after Andrew. That, that date marked everyone's time frame for, for, for their life. So a little background about the, the storm. Uh, it was August 1992. It was a fairly quiet start to the uh, hurricane season. Uh, there was just one subtropical storm earlier in the year. And Andrew came out of the deep tropics, um, but by around August 19th or 20th, it started sputtering and uh, weakening as a tropical storm. And they were about to stop writing advisories on it. It had become so disorganized. Uh, but the National Hurricane Center decided, well, let's hold, hold on to it for one or two more advisories um, because there's a chance it could redevelop. And it did. A big ridge uh, throughout the troposphere developed north of the system. Not only did that steer Andrew back to the west over the Bahamas and Florida, but it allowed for a very low shear environment and it quickly ramped up from a tropical storm all the way to a major hurricane. As it reached Miami on uh, the early morning of August 24th, uh, this was the last image from the uh, old WSR uh, 57 radar that was installed in Miami. They were about to uh, decommission it and put in a, a new Doppler radar, but they hadn't got there yet. And so you can see that donut of uh, orange and red uh, shows the eye wall. Uh, and whenever you see that, that's indicative of a major hurricane, uh, very symmetric convection. Uh, and of course, the strongest winds are in within that donut area, uh, the eye wall itself. So the hurricane made landfall in South Miami-Dade County, did not make landfall over downtown. And you might say, well, what's the difference of 20 miles? And for a system like Andrew, Andrew is small. Uh, and so uh, it was a huge difference and it could have been much, much worse if the eye went over Miami Beach and downtown Miami. Those two areas only experienced Category 1 conditions. So it occurred late night and when morning arose, uh, disaster was apparent um, throughout all of South, southern Miami-Dade County. Uh, some of the statistics uh, peak winds uh, we now estimate were 160 mile, 165 mile per hour sustained winds with a central pressure of 922 millibars. In 1992 dollars, it was $26 billion of damage uh, from agricultural uh, losses, from, uh, from homeowners, from business owners. Uh, that was the, by far the largest uh, price tag for a single hurricane at one point. Uh, direct deaths, 26, most in uh, Miami-Dade County, uh, a few in Louisiana as well after it made a second landfall. 
And one thing that was just astounding to me was that it destroyed, completely destroyed over 25,000 homes and damaged another 100,000. That is phenomenal amount of destruction. And in this case, very little was storm surge. It was almost all wind caused damage. So when you look at a hurricane like Andrew today, what kind of impact might it have? Um, so $26 billion in 1992 was a huge amount. But since then, you can see in the, the census reports, Miami-Dade County keeps having more and more people living here uh, because 99% of the time, it's a great place to live. Uh, in addition, per capita wealth uh, keeps going up in general. Uh, and so when you take into account inflation, per capita wealth and population increases, that $26 billion would roughly be $100 billion today. So doing that apples to apples comparison of hurricanes in the past from 1900 onward until uh, today, uh, this would put Andrew as number four right behind the uh, 1926 Great Miami hurricane, uh, the 1900 Galveston hurricane, and the 2005 uh, Hurricane Katrina that uh, Phil is going to chat about next. So what are some of the ways that it uh, changed the, uh, the nation and, uh, and, uh, and how we deal with hurricanes? There were some incredible changes made to uh, the insurance industry as well as building codes along the coast in Florida and elsewhere. So on the insurance industry side of things, uh, one aspect that was revolutionized because of uh, Andrew was catastrophe models. So these are models used by insurance companies to figure out how much they may have to pay out for different types of hurricanes and how often. So those models were in their infancy uh, back in 1992. And afterwards, um, there are several that are used uh, worldwide to uh, help determine not just hurricane impacts and uh, payouts that insurance companies may have to do, but also for, uh, for example, uh, earthquakes as well. There were huge changes in the way insurance policies were written. Back in 1992, it was very common to have uh, very low deductibles and full replacement. Uh, now, policies are much, much, much more expensive and deductibles are much higher. And so, uh, so that was a big change the insurance industry uh, put in place afterwards. In part because of that, it became more regulated as well. And a lot of the private insurance companies got out of issuing insurance. And so there still exists today the Citizens Property Insurance Corporation in Florida, uh, which is, if it's not the largest insurer in Florida, it's, it's one of the top ones that they're there. Um, building codes, one of the, the really nice silver lining after Andrew was that Miami-Dade County and Florida in general realized they needed to boost their building codes because there's a lot you can do, like the clips that Tim mentioned at the beginning of the program, to mitigate the damages. You can reduce damages quite a bit by keeping the wind getting inside your house. And so the Institute for uh, Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, they do uh, rankings of how good are the hurricane building codes across the United States. And their most recent one from 2018 still had Florida as the best state for uh, building codes in place. And this is directly because of Andrew and repercussions from that. One other interesting aspect to Andrew was it was considered category four at landfall um, when it hit. Uh, but since then, we learned a lot more about the structure of hurricane winds with height. 
And because of that, uh, 10 years after Andrew in, in, in 2000, uh, a group of us reanalyzed, that is, we revisited the database for Hurricane Andrew. Uh, green shows the original time series for intensity, that is maximum winds, and this would be the uh, landfall here in Florida. This would be a landfall in Bahamas. And red shows the revised. So because of a, a better understanding of how winds change from flight level down to the ocean surface, we're able to boost the winds a lot. We went from 140 mile per hour hurricane to 165 mile per hour hurricane. So because of that, we did a revision to history and called it a category five 10 years after the fact. And it was, uh, we could, I could go into some of the detail, but uh, suffice to say, such a decision is tough because you never have all the information you want because there's not anemometers of wind measuring devices everywhere. Most of the time, whatever out there get destroyed by the hurricane because they either lose power or get disabled. So we had to use a variety of uh, inferences to come up with that Category 5 uh, label for it. So one last thing is the meteorology is incredibly advanced compared to what it was in 1992. So just give you a couple snapshots of the actual forecast models and the National Hurricane Center's forecast back in 1992 for Hurricane Andrew. Um, so actually, we'll skip forward to the next slide. So this was a three-day forecast, about two and a half days before it hit uh, South Florida. Uh, the system was still a tropical storm at the time, and the models they had by today's standards were very primitive. They were statistical models. They were a simple one-layer advection-following model. And they, for the, they were just starting to introduce the global forecast system model, which is in orange. Uh, and so at this point, uh, this forecast, this is a three-day forecast, had a huge error. I mean, that's about a 400-mile error. And uh, today, our average errors are about 100 miles. And so uh, you can see what happened was the official forecast was for it to be east of the Bahamas. And in actuality, on the 24th at 2 p.m., it had actually hit Florida and crossed into the Gulf of Mexico. So it was a lot farther south than predicted. The actual prediction is in light blue. And it was also a lot faster than predicted. Uh, so fortunately, our computer models are a lot better today and uh, the global forecast system, which was just being experimented with that year, um, did a, a really good job with Andrew. I think I'll skip the next. And uh, just to finish up, uh, one thing that I got to do after Andrew was uh, to do uh, a lot of photography um, afterwards. But remember, back in 1992, there was no cell phones, there was no GPS. And because Andrew completely obliterated all street signs, and all the vegetation, you couldn't tell where you were. So when families like this family, the Acosta family in South Miami-Dade, were trying to get their insurance adjuster to come out and take a look at their house, they literally spray-painted on their missing garage door uh, their address, their their phone number, uh, and in this, play, this case, they put a little bit of a, of a message, Andrew, you big bad wolf, and it's got the mama pig, the daddy pig and the little baby pig. Um, so it was uh, interesting to see the messages, uh, both angry and sad and, uh, and hopeful, that people had uh, spray painted on their homes to help identify where they were living uh, for the insurance companies. So 
that to me is a, an opportunity to share with everyone a little bit about Andrew and some of the impacts it had on the meteorology, uh, the, uh, the building codes, the insurance industry, um, and how in South did uh, Miami, Florida. Uh, today, there is no uh, residual uh, impact that you can visually see in Miami-Dade County. Uh, everything's been rebuilt, and I think uh, we're much more better prepared for the next time we get Hurricane Andrew. Thank you very much. Great, great. Uh, re nice reminiscing about uh, Hurricane uh, Andrew. Hadn't thought about that one in a long while. Well, our, our next and final speaker of the panel uh, is our seasonal expert, Dr. Phil Klotzbach. And he's going to tell us about the next 10 storms we'll have this year. <laughs> no, I'm wrong. <laughs> Phil's going to talk to us about uh, Katrina. Have at it, Phil. All right. Uh, can everyone hear me and see me? Um, yeah, so we're going to talk with you about um, Hurricane Katrina. And I think everyone would certainly agree uh, that Hurricane Katrina was definitely one of these hurricanes uh, that changed history. Uh, to give you a little bit of background, I was also, like like Chris Lansing, I was also studying uh Hurricanes at Colorado State under Dr. Bill Gray um, in 2005 uh, when Hurricane Katrina came through. Um, it was one of the uh, um, years we forecast them um, to be extremely active. Uh, we forecast 20 named storms in 2005, thinking that was about as many as you could get. And of course, we had uh, 28, which we've just uh, tied so far in 2020. Um, but fortunately, so far in 2020, we have not seen quite the impacts that we saw in 2005. And obviously, I think with 2005, the biggest storm that everyone remembers, and I think was the one that, you know, still sends chills up and down people's spines, is Hurricane Katrina. Um, here's an infrared satellite image of Hurricane Katrina on August 29th, um, at, or late on August 28th local time, as it, bared, as it bore down on the uh, central Gulf Coast. At this point, it was a Category 5 hurricane. Um, so here's an infrared satellite loop of Hurricane Katrina as it approached the coast of Louisiana and then went up into Louisiana-Mississippi border for its second landfall. You can see very powerful storm, very large storm, had a large eye. Um, but as the storm approached, it did weaken. Um, Katrina weakened from a Category 5 um, down to a Category 4 operationally. In the best track after the season, it was downgraded to a Category 3. But as you can see, the storm, in terms of its overall size, the storm stayed together, um, or the storm size didn't change much. It actually got a little bit larger as it approached the coast, and its pressure remained very low. And I'm going to come back and talk a little more about why the pressure of Hurricane Katrina um, was so important. Because when you talk about hurricanes and you talk about their pressure, lower pressure means a stronger overall storm. If you have weaker winds and a low pressure, that means you have a very, very large storm. And obviously, unlike Hurricane Andrew that Chris talked about, where wind was the primary culprit, with Hurricane Katrina, it was obviously flooding. Um, enormous storm surge in Mississippi and in Louisiana and Alabama um, into Florida and then also obviously the levee failures uh, which caused a tremendous number of fatalities. Uh, here's the observed track of Hurricane Katrina. Um, kind of like Andrew, Katrina formed, um, it formed east of the Bahamas a little closer to the coast. It did ramp up quite quickly, uh, made land first landfall as a Category 1 hurricane just north of Miami, tracked southwestward across the Everglades, really didn't weaken very much, then got into the Gulf of Mexico into a very, very favorable for the hurricane environment, very low shear environment, very warm waters, an upper-level um, anti-cyclone that helped kind of improve the exhaust of the storm, helped the storm ramp up. And the water temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico, as you would expect in late August, very, very warm. Here's the observed sea surface temperatures for about the time Hurricane Katrina was in the Gulf. 
As you know, the Gulf of Mexico is a bathtub every year. Sea surface temperatures between about 84 to 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Plenty of warm to support really, really nasty hurricanes. And given the low shear and high moisture environment, Katrina did rapidly intensify. Um, as Chris talked about with Andrew, you know, the forecasts in 92 were, were fairly primitive. By 2005, we did have much better modeling. Um, a lot of these high-resolution models had already come in, plus we had much better global forecast models. Um, and if you look, here's the track forecast for Hurricane Katrina uh, from Friday. Uh, you can see the storm's forecast, the forecast track was remarkably good. Um, basically forecasting a first landfall over Burris, Louisiana, which is exactly what it did, and then a second landfall near the Louisiana the Mississippi border. Uh, the intensity forecasts were a bit lower than what actually was observed, but certainly in terms of the track, um, leaps and bounds better than what we saw with Hurricane Andrew in 1992. Obviously, we had much better modeling, um, te modeling technology in 2005 than we did in 1992. And even since 2005, the forecast models have gotten a lot better, um, especially the track forecasts have gotten uh, much, much better. The intensity forecasts still, still pose problematic, but those are improving as well. Uh, so from a meteorological statistical perspective, its lifetime maximum intensity, it was a Category 5 hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, had a very, very low pressure, 902 um, hectopascals. Its first landfall in Florida was as a Category 1. Obviously, it did, it did some damage there, but I'm going to focus, obviously, on the next two landfalls, which were the extremely impactful ones. Its first Gulf landfall was um, as a Category 3 hurricane with a pressure of 920 millibars or hectopascals. Second landfall near the Louisiana-Mississippi border. 928 hectopascals, and it was also the lowest pressure on record for a hurricane making landfall in Louisiana. So I'm sure most of you are familiar with Hurricane Laura, which made, early, made landfall earlier this year. Hurricane Laura had winds of 130 knots or 150 miles an hour, which tied it with the last island hurricane of 1856 for the strongest hurricane on record to hit Louisiana by wind. But as pressure was 938 millibars, Katrina's pressure was quite a bit lower, and overall the surge was higher with Katrina. The area that was impacted was much also much larger with Hurricane Katrina. Obviously, we also have to realize where Laura made landfall was fairly sparsely populated. Obviously, where Katrina made landfall impacted a much larger area. Um, and just to kind of show you how kind of anomalous Katrina was for its winds versus its pressure, here's a plot showing the wind pressure relationships for all U.S. landfalling hurricanes since 1950. Um, and if you look, you see in general lower pressure is associated with stronger storms, but there is some spread. And you can see the red dot is Hurricane Katrina. And Katrina's pressure was 920 millibars or hectopascals. Its pressure was equivalent to the three category five, or equivalent to both Hurricane Michael, which was um, made landfall at 140 knots, and then Hurricane Andrew, its pressure was 922 hectopascals, so slightly, um, a slightly uh, higher pressure, even though the winds obviously in Andrew were much stronger. Um, and that's, as Chris mentioned, Andrew was a very small storm, Katrina was a very large storm. Um, so we actually published a paper basically arguing that in the future we should cat consider categorizing hurricanes by pressure as opposed to wind. As Chris also mentioned, you know, it's really, really hard to measure um, winds. First of all, measuring them even by aircraft can be challenging because you're trying to measure the strongest winds in a swath. But measuring the pressure if you have a well-defined hurricane is pretty straightforward. If you look at Hurricane Katrina, its pressure was equivalent, we argue, to a Category 5, uh, whereas its winds were a Category 3. Um, and as 
you would expect with this very, very large, powerful storm. It had a phenomenal storm surge associated with it. 27, 28 feet of storm surge in portions of Mississippi. Tremendous storm surge in Louisiana as well. Also Alabama up in the Mobile Bay and even some storm surge in Florida, which is just remarkable considering the storm made landfall, its second landfall near the Louisiana-Mississippi border. It was providing strong storm surge even all the way into uh, Florida. And as you, obviously, as you would expect, um, the storm surge damage was just tremendous. You can see just block after block just wiped out uh, by the storm surge from Hurricane Katrina. Um, and then really also, too, obviously, you know, what caused the most fatalities was the levee failures in, New or in, in the New Orleans metropolitan area. Um, as you can see here, uh, you can just see all the houses um, Unlike in Mississippi, where pretty much everything was just pretty much wiped out. In Louisiana, a lot of these houses were still there, but it was just, um, they were obviously inundated with water. So just a phenomenal amount of damage. And obviously everyone remembers um, just the humanitarian disaster that occurred in the weeks after Katrina. Um, here's images of people on roofs waiting to be rescued after the flooding inundated the city. So just a humanitarian disaster following Hurricane Katrina. Um, fatalities, direct and indirect fatalities in Louisiana, almost 1,600. 238 in Mississippi. So as I always tell people, even had the levees held and New Orleans mostly been spared, um, the, day, the storm still caused over 200 fatalities primarily due to storm surge. And that's one of the things I think that really the Hurricane Center has really focused a lot more on storm surge watches and warnings and really emphasizing the storm surge challenges. And that's the loss of life from storm surges is pretty much almost gone down to zero since that time. Uh, 14 direct fatality in indirect in Florida and two even in Georgia and Alabama. Total damage from Katrina was about 108, over $100 billion. And now with um, adjusted for inflation and um, wealth, it's up to about $175 billion. So just a phenomenally damaging storm um, and certainly one I, I think that we could certainly agree had changed history. Um, and lastly, I did want to plug some new research um, that we actually just got published uh, or it's about to, it's, it's in press for the Bolton of the American Meteorological Society. If you're interested in historical hurricanes and a historical hurricane season, uh, myself and some colleagues published, have published a paper on the 1933 Atlantic hurricane season, um, which was a phenomenally active season. It generated actually more accumulated cyclone energy or ACE than did um, the uh, 2005 season. And here's his daily weather map from uh, September 4th, 1933. In September 4th, 1933, we had just had a landfall in Category 3 major hurricane make landfall along the Treasure Coast of Florida. And you see also a rather um, impressive looking low pressure area. That was the Cuba-Brownsville hurricane, which as you would expect from the name, made landfall as a Category 3 hurricane just 23 hours later in Texas. Um, so talk about a crazy hurricane season. Um, and they certainly had some uh, severe impacts. So if you're interested in more historical hurricane stuff, I invite you to check out that, that paper. So with that, I'll, I'll end. And, I'll try, and I guess I guess now's the time for, for questions. Awesome. Great job, gentlemen. Uh, uh, I'll probably have a million questions, but I'll keep my mouth shut after a few observations so we can get the audience comments on that. Uh, so to me, I see a common theme in looking at these historical storms is, is that uh, in the end, what the catastrophes they've caused that have made them historical or by, caused by bad decisions by people. In the early part, you know, the historical pre uh, pre uh, uh, 1900s say uh, we really did the, the bad decisions weren't anyone's real fault. They just didn't know uh, what the risks were from the hurricanes. And then you start looking at the ones that uh, 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 Chris and Phil talked about. 
we know better. We know that you can't build the houses that blow away at 100 miles an hour in South Florida, but we do it anyway. We know that storm surge is really bad along the Gulf Coast, but we're uh, as I speak, there are new houses being built within sight of water here in Galveston County, flat on the ground. So uh, the challenge is uh, uh, catching that lightning in a bottle kind of thing like an Andrew and actually coming back and making a building code that works. Uh, precious few other states have done what uh, uh, South Florida did uh, post-Andrew. I, mean, I, I can attest to that over in Texas. It's a constant struggle just to hold our own with a minimum code that will not stand up to an Andrew-like storm. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, from your guys' perspective, uh, what, are the, what do you think the next lessons learned ought to be going forward from our history of storms? Uh, 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 Carrie, I'll start with you. What the heck? Okay, well, you know, I have a little bit more of a, a longer bias, of course, but I like to see that merge a little bit more closely with the with the current with the more current modern stuff so you know when you have those building codes or return intervals or what the insurance does you know they it'll be more of a holistic approach of looking at things uh-huh okay uh chris yeah one thing that that struck me um was how deadly katrina was and that was from a hurricane that everybody knew was coming and was a category five 24 hours before it made landfall. And it shows the importance of having the decision makers at this, at the national and the state and the city level, making sure they understand the hurricane hazards and making the right decisions, even though those can be very unpopular to call for evacuations. But if they don't do that, then people are gonna die. Um, an example of that happened in St. Bernard's Parish, where the hurricane, mandatory hurricane evacuation came one day after the hurricane. And that was the area where there was the nursing home, where it went underwater, and so many of their elderly patients died because the decision makers made the wrong choice and did not order a mandatory evacuation. And so we have to be vigilant on that and educating the decision makers, emergency managers, governors, uh, uh, other elected officials that they need to make sure that they get the people the heck out. Uh, otherwise, we'll have another Katrina. And that's uh, that's what scares me. And uh, that's what concerns us at the National Hurricane Center. So that we uh, redouble our education, because uh, even though, as Phil mentioned, the fatalities from storm surge have been low. Uh, that's not a guarantee to keep happening in the future. We have we have massive education that has to be done every year because so many new people move into states in harm's way. Mm -hmm. uh, Eric, your thoughts? Uh, you're muted. Yeah, I'm going to bring it down a little bit because I'm relying on human nature to make a change for the better. And sometimes I don't have as much faith in human nature uh, when it comes to making wise decisions. Uh, you had mentioned uh, development along the coast. I live in Marblehead, Massachusetts, and we've done studies here, or, or local scientists have done studies showing what's going to happen with sea level rise and future nor'easters and potential hurricanes and still uh, people are building very close to the shore, uh, low-lying areas, areas that are very prone to flooding. 
so I would uh, hope that in the future we can become better at uh, making regional local planning decisions and enforcing them so we don't create a situation where we're uh, sort of increasing the load for disaster when a hurricane does come along. Another thing that's a problem with human nature is people are very unwilling to do things that have a large upfront cost without a definitive uh, back-end liability. And I wish that people were more forgiving of meteorologists and local politicians who tell them to evacuate and then perhaps the storm tracks to a different area. And in hindsight, you didn't need to evacuate. Uh, so, as I said, I'm not holding my breath. I, I, I think that demographics are showing that more and more people are moving to the coast. Uh, a lot of uh, people with a huge amount of disposable income are building enormous houses right on the shore. Uh, the good thing for them is they have enough money where they can probably afford flood insurance and they can repair if necessary. But uh, it's not just those people who are near the coastline. So I am quite concerned. And I can tell you, being from New England, where we don't think about hurricanes as often as you do down in the south or in the Gulf Coast, uh, it's just a matter of time before another hurricane of 1938 is going to end up in our neighborhood. And uh, when you see what a nor'easter does to downtown Boston right now, if you could imagine uh, what a hurricane category three or maybe even worse hurricane might do if it plowed into Boston today, uh, a lot of pain and suffering. And uh, I, I, I so, you know, I think it's going to be a periodic more of the same. Uh, we do get incrementally better, but uh, we're not always the best at, at planning for our own uh, best future. Let me put it that way. <laughs> yeah, well said, uh, Phil. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, these, these other these other fine gentlemen have done a great job, kind of highlighting a lot of these points as well. I mean, I think to Eric's point, we do have large growth in population and wealth along the coastline, and you know, I mean, I think this year really serves as a, as a case in point of you know we've had six hurricanes hit the U.S. and yet the damage from these hurricanes has been about thirty billion, which is a lot, but you run, I mean, look at these, look at Andrew, look at Katrina. I mean, we've, we've gotten kind of remarkably, obviously people have been hit have been really hit, but we've gotten remarkably lucky in terms of we haven't had a major hurricane. One of these nasty hurricanes hit a major population center. Had Laura gone a hundred miles farther west into Houston, I'm sure Bill, you could attest to kind of the damage that it would have done there had Laura taken some of the model forecast tracks just a day prior. So, you know, I mean, the, the growth in population, you know, I mean, we, we do have these kinds of things where you could see, you know, as we talked, I guess we didn't really talk too much about the great Miami hurricane, but, you know, if that storm were to make landfall today, a high-end cap four ran to downtown Miami, you'd be talking $200, $300 billion in damage. So, you know, there's there's definitely that that, that potential is, is still there. But I, I mean, I, I think with kind of just the last point on, on Chris's point, like if you had told me in 2005 that a very well forecast hurricane would kill, you know, almost 2,000 people in the United States, I would not have believed that was possible. Um, and, you know, even the forecast of, that was a really good forecast. So, I mean, I guess it's like, you know, I think we learned some lessons from Katrina, but again, you know, it's getting people, you know, making, making the right decisions at the right time. And I think Neil Frank used to say it was, you have to evacuate three times for every time you need to evacuate. You, you evacuate three times for every time you need to evacuate or something along those lines. And probably with improvements in forecasting, maybe it's two times, but, you know, not every time, it's, I guess the thing is like, well, you know, 
if you come back and your house is still there, you should be thankful your house is still there as opposed to the alternative where, you know, you, yes, you need to evacuate your house is gone. Like at least, you know, instead of probably you should be actually thankful that your house is still standing um, as opposed to the, to the alternative. So, um, but there's been a lot of studies conducted on evacuations and um, things along those lines. So I think there's, you know, a lot of kind of work being done in that. I think really getting more social science into meteorology is, is critical um, to kind of help improve these, uh, these forecasts going forward. Yeah, but uh, the challenge with the evacuation with this big population centers and the growth there is, uh, is, is it keeps pushing the uh, clearance times farther and farther out. And uh, human nature being what it is on a nice sunny day and a storm still in the Caribbean, uh, people on the Gulf Coast are going to uh, maybe want to hedge their bets and wait till later to evacuate. I think that's a challenge going ahead. Uh, Tim, I don't want to forget our audience. What you got for questions here? Uh, we've got a couple of them coming in. Thanks, Bill. Um, Marcel's asking uh, Dr. Mock. He says, uh, do you think the lack of hurricanes in the 1850s created um, a desire to explore more in the South, to go more to the South? He says, was it due to a divine blessing or, or were they aware of the variability in, in, in hurricanes? Okay, well, back then there was the law of storms controversy was still going on. So they, the people in the South generally didn't differentiate hurricanes from actually winter nor'easters. So I, I think they kind of, there's always the belief even back then that when people settle and they plow and they do all sorts of agricultural stuff, they could change the climate and all that. But they never really mentioned hurricanes specifically. Good, thank you. And uh, Barry made a comment, uh, Barry Goldsmith made a comment that don't forget the level of trust, talking about Katrina in particular, the level of trust people put uh, in some of the most vulnerable communities. He says some only trusted the message from their church. Um, and in some cases, they may have trusted their faith in God to guide their, their decisions. Others wouldn't leave due to a real prospect of looting. Uh, they were afraid to be looted. And, uh, and then others just were optimistic, just thought, nah, it's not going to happen here. And that's a discussion about Katrina. Can I, I just, can I add something there real quick? That just you saying that brought it up. Uh, it, it has to do with the current assault. I think assault is a fair word on science in our country and uh, expertise. And I, I just feel that uh, people's, it seems to be their decreasing interest in taking the words of expert or experts, or at least weighing the words of experts. And in this case, meteorologists, uh, is causing a, a problem, uh, I, I think. And I think it relates to, I used to work for the government. I, I worked for NOAA for a while. I worked for EPA. And I think also the distrust of the government. I'm not saying it's misplaced. There are a lot of reasons to distrust government and bureaucracies. And uh, But there, there's something, when it gets eroded to such an extent, when people don't believe uh, what they're told, when there's a good basis for what they're being told, it really makes it very difficult from a policy perspective and a social perspective to make good decisions. And uh, I, I think that's a very serious problem right now. Um, I don't know how to solve it, but it seems to me, since I've been around for a couple of decades at least and very involved in policy debates, that it definitely has gotten worse in, uh, in recent years. I'm not just talking the last four years, I'm talking about the last 10 or 20 years. And I think that's a real problem and it's a real loss because I, I do believe that most uh, experts, most of the people who work for the National Weather Service and the meteorologists 
are, uh, are, are skilled and well-meaning and they're not trying to dupe people. And uh, I, I just wish there was more confidence in the people that we as a country put in a place to warn us about things. I just wish there was more confidence in that, uh, that process. So, anyway. <laughs> that's a great point. Everybody else wants to comment on it. I think that, that's, a, that's a subject for good discussion. If anybody else has a thought on that. While you think about that, we've also got a question for Chris. Um, this is, what do you think of the next steps to change about the hurricane community? Is it the Saffir-Simpson scale, uh, a preparedness aspect, insurance, communication? Uh, and Marcel's asking specifically about the non-English speaking community in South Florida and how do we more effectively reach those people? But then that question's for Chris about what, what's yeah. next. Right, right. So. Uh, we're con continuing to, to push forward in the National Weather Service and the National Hurricane Center with uh, new products and services, and, and a lot of that nowadays is communications. Um, so how do we harness uh, social media to reach out to folks effectively? Um, and so we've um, one example of that is uh, the emphasis in the Weather Service for MAS. So it's actually it's a Spanish language translating uh, service that forecasters provide um, so that when there's, for example, a, a media inquiry in, in Spanish uh, for a weather forecast office and they don't have any Spanish speakers, you can reach out to a cadre of, of uh, colleagues to, uh, to help with that, um, that request. And so uh, we want to continue to make sure that we can uh, communicate with everybody because uh, we realize not just in the United States, but our colleagues in Central America and South America um, and the Caribbean, they speak Spanish, they speak French, and we want to make sure that uh, they understand our forecasts as well. Um, we do have responsibility at the United, uh, National Hurricane Center, not just for the United States, but we provide the big picture five-day forecast for every country in the Western Hemisphere for hurricanes. And so we want to make sure that, uh, that we're not leaving anybody out. Uh, and that, that can be a challenge um, because people interpret uh, things very differently. So, so yeah, to me, the, the biggest challenge the next decade for hurricanes is you know, how do we best communicate the impacts um, and have people take the right actions? Yeah, I, I de definitely agree with that. That's That's been my observation for about 25 years now is that uh, what we have to say is, is pretty pretty well known now, but how we get it to people is difficult. Okay, Bill, do you have any more thoughts? We're up and it's 11 o'clock. We uh, promised our panelists we'd have them out of here in an hour. So, Bill, if you have any last thoughts you want to wrap up with, and then we'll close it from here. Yeah, I really like that. Someone, I forgot now who, who mentioned it, but the there are storms everywhere along our coast that, that hang on in memory beyond the generation that was impacted. Uh, so those of you that are uh, broadcast meteorologists or practicing operational meteorologists, it behooves you to know what those storms are in the markets you're working at so that you can uh, relive that aspect for the lessons learned. Here in Galveston County in Houston, uh, the 1900 storm that changed history down here is probably the, the legacy storm. If there's going to be another one that I've witnessed, it would be Hurricane Harvey from the horrific flooding that we had but it's too soon to say on that we're still in all the most of the generation of the experience it's still here 
Gentlemen, any final thoughts? Anybody have something you want to say just in closing that, uh, you know, historically speaking, uh, where we've come, where we've been, lesson learned, anything you want to close with? We'll start, uh, we started with Eric, so we'll go back to Eric again. Any, any last thoughts? Uh, no, I think we covered uh, pretty much everything. I just want to thank all the meteorologists and people who give us the forecast. I've gained a new and deeper appreciation for uh, the weather report that I used to look at more superficially. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kerry. Uh, well, as Bill said, you know, um, you know, some of the recent things like the Harveys will eventually be a legacy storm, but given what's going on with climate change and all that and what it does and what it does not do to hurricanes, of course, too, we're entering interesting times. We are indeed. Dr. Phil? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it is really good to try to um, keep these historical hurricanes alive and to relive and to basically kind of remind i think it's important especially because you will go through periods where your market may not be hit by a hurricane for 5 10 15 20 years you can go through really good strings of luck and then that bad luck but i think it's important to kind of it's important to keep these historical hurricanes alive such that when you do get a new one a new hurricane you can compare them with them and give people some idea because a lot of times if they haven't had one recently they think this is something that's never happened before and it's important to kind of tie in these historical hurricanes and to talk about it. I mean, I think really it is, I mean, it's amazing some of those 1800s hurricanes in Texas, how they changed, you know, where development ended up taking place and stuff. I think emphasizing, you know, these historical hurricanes and just how much damage they did. And if those storms came along today, what kind of impacts they would have. I think it's just important to kind of keep these, keep these historical hurricanes alive. I normally tweet a lot about historical hurricanes during the season uh, when there's breaks, but this year we didn't really have any breaks. So not as many historical tweets as normal, but um, hopefully next year we'll have more historical hurricane tweets and <laughs> We're all good with that. Thumbs up on that. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. And Chris, any other thoughts? You just gave us some good final a minute ago, but if you have anything else. No, just related to, to what Phil said, it's, it's important to put records into context. You know, I, a couple years ago in Hurricane Michael made landfall as a Category 5 in Northwest Florida. It was a big to-do. First time ever we've had a Category 5 uh, well yeah, except Camille hit 150 miles farther west. So, you know, as a Category 5 back in 1969. So, you know, you always have to put an understanding of what do these records mean and how does the technology affect our ability to determine what's actually happened. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to grapple with that ourselves here at the Hurricane Center as we're getting to Hurricane Ada and certainly the one or two more we're going to have after that and what this new record really means. Um, and so so that, that's an important perspective is, is yeah, if you're talking about records, what is the, um, the actual reliable time period for the records that are taking place and does technology affect those records uh, in any meaningful way? Well, gentlemen, thank you. What a fascinating panel discussion this has been today. What a wealth of knowledge and information uh, you gentlemen have and have shared with us, and we really appreciate that. Thanks for joining us on Hurricane Center, produced by the Storm Science Network and made possible by USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylux Hurricane Clips. You can find other episodes on HurricaneCenterLive.com.